If you're new and visiting us this morning, welcome. Thank you so much for, for coming to visit us. Um, we love visitors here at, at Sovereign Grace, and um, we're so blessed that uh, you would come and visit us. Please come and say hi. We'd love to welcome you. As Dave said, there's uh, welcome packs at the back. Um, please make yourself feel at home. Thank you so much for coming. You might not be aware that we're in the middle of uh, a series on John. and In fact, this message will be pushing over into the second half of our series. Um, so, whew. We're halfway through, John. It's been great. Um, it really is an awesome privilege to be able to bring to you this passage this morning. This is uh, the final of John's uh, great signs and perhaps the greatest miracle, the greatest sign that Jesus performs other than, of course, his death and resurrection on the cross. Um, we're going to be doing things a little bit different this morning because it's a because it's a story. Um, we're not going to be reading the passage. We're going to more read the passage as we go, and um, and hopefully that will be something a little bit different. But before we do any of that, why don't you join with me in praying? Gracious Lord, we want to thank you for the precious gift of your word. Lord, we don't deserve you to speak to us, and yet you do. And today, Lord, you have given us an impossible task to understand your word, to know your word. We cannot do this. I cannot help these people to understand your word. We cannot understand your word apart from your help. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would send your spirit, your Holy Spirit into our hearts, Lord, that you might help us to understand, but not just understand, Lord, that you might change us by your power. And we ask this with just incredible confidence because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I, I want to put something to you. And, and that is that, that we live in a society that is terribly afraid of death. And you might hear me say that and think, Brennan, I don't believe you. You know, we're not really a society that's afraid of death. You know, we're not really that fearful of death, are we? But when you stop and you think about it, I I really think there's a lot of evidence that we are incredibly fearful of death. Not only, I mean, beauty regimes and health and exercise and genetic engineering, so many ways, but there's even there's even more than that. I mean, I was just reflecting it on this week. Why do we care so much more that our doctors are well-trained than that pastors and ministers are well-trained? I mean, it's good to have doctors that are well-trained, but why do we care so much more that our doctors are well-trained than our pastors? It's because when we come to the end of our life, when we come to the end of our life, what we care most is that the man who will be seeing over my physical health can save me, can help me, can, can help me to survive, to live, because we are afraid of death. So if my pastor doesn't know the gospel so well, it's less important. 
we are a society that is afraid of death and puts our hope often in medicine for our salvation. You know, I was uh, actually reading this week in the newspaper in the Sydney Morning Herald about a couple called Paul McLaughlin and Meredith Averill. I don't know if you've heard of these guys before. But they're uh, these big advocates of this new dietary regime. It, it's, uh, it's called calorie restriction. And in essence, what you do is you restrict your calories, your calorific intake, by about 30% less than what is the recommended minimum for a person to have. And you eat other healthy foods, but in very small amounts. And the hope is that by eating much less you will somehow extend your life and live longer. And so these guys just for the last 16 years have been living this way and advocating this way of life in the hope that they might live longer. And it's really interesting. I'll I'll read some of what the article said. The, The writer of the article in the Sydney Morning Herald writes, McLaughlin and Averill believe that by following their diet, they will be around to see scientific developments that will prolong their lives even further. Stem cell research, they suggest, will soon make it possible to replace worn-out body parts. They await immortality, resisting all temptation, all alcohol and chocolate, as if they were religious zealots awaiting the rapture. He goes on, They reportedly have incredibly healthy hearts, but superficially they look their age. Isn't their lab rat lifestyle a neurotic response to the fear of death. When I ask why anyone would want to live a life of delayed gratification if those hard-won years were spent in geriatric oblivion, they talk of calorie restriction as if it were not just the secret to eternal life, but to eternal youth. I don't know if that story resonates with you. I don't know if you're sitting here this morning and... For you, there's this just fear of the end of your life, a fear of death. Or maybe it's different for you. Maybe, maybe you have recently experienced the death of someone who's precious to you and you're amidst of grief and suffering. Or maybe for you, it's just that life is difficult and At the moment, there is great difficulty and suffering for you. If that's you, if that's your situation, I believe this text has something to say. I believe God wants to speak to you this morning from John chapter 11. I've titled this message, I am the resurrection and the life. And there is just one main point that I'm really going to be plugging this morning, that I'm going to be repeating so many times, and that my hope is that you would just really take away from the message of this morning. And that is this. It's that Jesus enters into suffering to bring you life. That Jesus enters into suffering to bring you life. We're going to be following the story as it unfolds uh, here in John chapter 11. And as we read through, I think there's three main sections, three main stages of John's account. And that is, firstly, that Jesus enters. He enters. Secondly, that he suffers. And thirdly, that he 
raises. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to John chapter 11, verse 1. Um, But before we begin to read the passage, just by way of context, we've been looking at chapter 10 and Jesus as the good shepherd and and Jesus, who has been previously in Jerusalem, teaching lots about himself, and he's, he's increasingly teaching about his relationship with God, that he is, in fact, the divine Messiah. And as a result, he's been increasingly facing opposition and persecution. Now, Jesus has left Jerusalem. There's probably a period of two months that has passed since he was teaching in the temple, and he's probably northwest of uh, Jerusalem in a place called Britannia, about 100 miles outside of Jerusalem, or about four days' journey. Now, Lazarus, who this story is all about, he lives in Bethany, which is right next door to Jerusalem, only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he's the brother of Mary and, and the brother of Martha, who we see in the next chapter in John chapter 12, and also from Luke 10, Mary and Martha. And now they've sent messages to Jesus in Britannia to tell him that their brother is sick. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's read from John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But Jesus, when he heard it, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's for the glory of God. It immediately casts our eyes back to 9 verse 3, where Jesus performs that amazing miracle and heals that man who was born blind. So we're we're already expecting that there's going to be a miracle. Read on verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place. Did you catch that? Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when he heard that they that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Jesus, what? Jesus, if you love this man, if you love this man, why wouldn't you go and save his life? Why wouldn't you leave immediately to the place where he is? Why would you stay? It seems absolutely the opposite of everything we would expect from Jesus if you loved him, doesn't it? Jesus, if you loved Lazarus, why wouldn't you go? Why would you stay? I want you to hold that question because that question is very important for this passage, and we're going to come back to it. Why don't you read on with me, uh, verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, 
let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and, and you're going there again? Jesus has previously in John chapter 10 been under this enormous pressure and the Jews have been threatening to stone him. And the disciples were there, they know this. And stoning, I mean, friends, stoning, I mean, we talk about it often, but I think we often don't stop to reflect upon what a terrible death this is. I mean, somehow growing up as a kid in church, I used to think of stoning as something like you get little pebbles and you just kind of, it stings a little bit and you throw them at someone until you have this pile of little pebbles and they're buried underneath and then that's it, they're stoned. Um, But that is not what this is. That is not what this is. They beat you. They drag you outside the gates of the city. They pick up big rocks and they smash them against your face until you are dead. It is a terrible death. It is a horrible death. And the Jews have been threatening to stone Jesus already. And the disciples were there. They know this. And they're afraid. They are deeply afraid. Let's read on and see Jesus' response. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus' response is, remember what I said to you back in chapter 8? I'm the light of the world. I am the God of Israel who was with the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness, guarding their steps. Walk with me. You've got nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to fear. I'm with you. There's 12 hours to the day. I have a set path. I will not die before my time. But I'm going to wake up Lazarus. And the disciples hear this, that Jesus is going to wake up Lazarus, and they're confused. They're confused. They think, well, Jesus, you're going to wake up Lazarus? I mean, if he's just having a nap, you know, he's going to be fine. He's going to be all right, isn't it? They, they don't really understand what's going on. If Lazarus is asleep, he'll wake up. What's the big deal? So Jesus speaks to them again in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you might believe. But let us go to him. Lazarus is dead, but for their sake, Jesus is glad. Why? So that they might believe. Jesus is glad that he was absent and Lazarus is now, as a result, dead. He's glad for their sake because this will lead to faith. And that, friends, is what this whole book is about. John 20, 31. I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believe and have life in his name. John is writing this book for one purpose, and that is that you might believe in Christ. Now, Thomas still doesn't believe this, and he is still afraid. And he knows about Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he knows that their family, it's quite well off. 
And so he knows that at this funeral, which now he realizes they're going to, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people who previously wanted Jesus dead. And so Thomas says, oh, let's go and die with him. This is, this is a suicide mission. This is a death wish going just outside of Jerusalem to see this man Lazarus. What's the point of all this? Jesus allows this suffering to take place and willfully turns to enter into this suffering, going about this four-day journey to Jerusalem. He allows the suffering to take place and willfully turns to enter into it. He enters. Well, the next stage of our story, he suffers. I thought I'd just share with you a bit of a story um, from my past to give you a taste of the profound grief that can be at funerals. And I know for many of you, you've been to far more funerals than I have and suffered way more than me. But just this story just cast my mind back to when I was still about 13 years old. And I had a friend called Andrew Jeffries. And Andrew, he was this uh, kind of like a oranga, a red-headed guy with freckles. And he was he's the funniest guy. He used to tell all these jokes all the time. He always, always, at every moment, have a joke. And I guess, you know, we're only 13, so they're probably like toilet jokes. But, you know, you like that stuff when you're 13. And anyway, um, Andrew played with me on... Um, played with me on both the cr- my cricket team and on my soccer team. And I still remember the day when my mum got a phone call uh, from another one of the parents to say that uh, Andrew had been at the cross-country with another friend of mine who had been running alongside him and he had just dropped down. And in that moment, he'd died. And Andrew had had this virus in his heart that had damaged his heart and no one knew about it and... Just running that day, it just had a heart attack and, and he passed away. And when you're 13, I feel like you don't really understand much about death. Like you're still trying to come to terms with what it is and you're really struggling to make sense of everything. And I remember just being really shocked and I didn't really know what to, to do with this thing that had happened. And I can remember standing in the funeral and there's people crying and... And the service goes by, and and at the end of the service, Andrew's parents walk down the middle of the aisle out of the church. And I can remember his his mum, as she walked down the aisle, walking past me, and she was wearing this big black hat, and she had this veil down the front, but you, I could just see straight through it. And just tears down her face, the, the agony and the grief of a mum who's just lost her only child. Funerals can be just times of absolute grief, can't they? But, friends, this funeral that Jesus is attending is different from funerals as we know them. It's, it's much, much different. You know, Australian funerals tend to be quite formal and, and solemn occasions, but not so in the first century. 
you would have weeping and wailing and laments. You had pale, you had paid and trained professional wailers who will come to your funeral to, to, to accentuate the grief at the loss of your friend. You would have flute players and shouts of grief and moaning from people around. It's a chaotic scene. There's people everywhere mourning and others comforting them because it's a quite well-off family. And Mary is at home and Martha comes out to see Jesus. So let's continue to read from verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. you know, on one level, it's, it's a stinging rebuke, isn't it? Jesus, if you were here, this would not have happened. Jesus, if you loved my brother, you would have come and never allowed this to take place. But it doesn't just end there. She also ends with this kind of profession of faith as well. She says, but Lord, you know, I know that everything you ask from God, even though it's too late for my brother... You can do so. So she's expecting a miracle as well. But she just has no idea what's coming. Read on from verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, Lord, I know, I know that he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. It's, it's, she's, she's not satisfied at all with his response, is she? Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha straight away thinks of the final resurrection. You see, the Jews were expecting a day when the dead, the faithful dead, will be ra- raised up from the grave by God, some to life and others to judgment. Isaiah 26.19 says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust Awake and sing for joy, for your Jew is a Jew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And she thinks this is exactly what Jesus is talking about, that final day. And so she says, Yes, Jesus, I know. But Jesus is going to blow her conception completely away. And this next verse is the verse in this whole passage. This is the central verse that explains this whole passage in verse 25. The incredible thing that Jesus will say in response to her. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. 
I am the resurrection and the life. You're waiting for a final resurrection day. I am that final resurrection day. I am bringing it now. It starts here with me, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Whoever believes in me, even death won't be his end. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He says it again, but this time in even stronger words. Verse 26, he says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, this is the strongest way you can say no in Greek. We looked at this before. It's called the emphatic negative. The emphatic negative is like saying, this will never, ever, 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 not even a chance of ever happen. And Jesus here is saying, whoever lives and believes in me will never, ever, not even a chance of ever die, ever perish. That's a massive promise. And Martha, she believes. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God that's come into the world. Well, we continue on and Martha, having spoken with Jesus, she runs in and tells Mary exactly what's happened. And Mary being Mary, we we know Mary from Luke 10, Mary who falls at Jesus' feet. Well, she runs up again and, and she falls at Jesus' feet and again says the same thing to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And you can just imagine as Mary comes to leave and falls at Jesus' feet, the throng of people follow her because they think she's going to the grave to mourn. And so here is Mary weeping at Jesus' feet. And here comes the crowd, the big ruckus of people weeping and lamenting and shouting, all coming with with Jesus standing by looking on. They are weeping, they are wailing, they are crying. It is an absolutely intense scene. So we read verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word there, deeply moved, it actually means like the snorting of a horse. Like a, it's, it's agitation. Jesus is angry. Jesus in this moment is, he's mad. Why? Why, why is he mad? He sees Mary at his feet, crying and stirred up, crying. There's this, there's this throng of people around him and they're weeping, they're in grief and they're, they're crying out to God and he sees it and he's angry. Jesus, why is he angry? 
And the answer is because they don't believe that he genuinely loves Lazarus. You know, Martha said to him the first time, Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, if you loved my brother, you would have healed him. And Mary comes and falls at his feet in tears again and says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Lord, why didn't you heal my brother? Lord, if you loved my brother, you would have healed him. And they question his love for Lazarus. And he's stirred in his spirit. Let's read on. 34. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The word is, he burst into tears. This is the God-man right in the midst of human suffering. You know, just, just picture with me the crowd. You have this crowd just wailing and moaning and crying out to God. You have an incredible scene all around. You have Mary at his feet, tears dripping down her face, wailing and crying out, Lord, why would you do this? And the Saviour, the God-man, just burst into tears. This is the King of kings in the midst of human suffering. And he is not far and distant. He is present and affected. He is grieved because he loved this man. And he loves these people and he hates to see them suffer. He's not far and distant. He is present and affected. But this isn't the greatest example of his suffering. No, not at all. This isn't the greatest example of Christ entering into suffering. Not even close. He comes to Jerusalem with a purpose. And that is to die on a cross. To endure far greater suffering than any other man has ever experienced. Not just the agony of his death, not just the betrayal and the rejection, but the full wrath of God upon his head for our sins. That we might be right with him. This is the God-man who enters into suffering. Well, where do we go with this? Christ has entered into suffering to bring you life. My question for you is, are you grieved at the moment? Are you grieved? I just It feels like in this church there's been a lot of funerals recently. And are you grieved? Are you, are you mourning the loss of, of a loved one or, or maybe a relationship that's just grown cold? And you're suffering, mourning for what once was. Maybe it's, it's a work situation. Maybe you're struggling to find work and you're despairing. Or maybe you're despairing in the midst of work that's just 
seems more than you can bear. Well, Christ is present. But he's not just present. He's sympathetic. Christ is present in your suffering. And is not unaffected by it. He is deeply affected. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, the Apostle Peter says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, one who in every respect was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Friends, if you are in the midst of suffering, if you are grieved, let's draw near to the throne of grace. He enters into our suffering and so can empathize with our weaknesses. He enters, he suffers. Third stage of our story, he raises. Let's read on, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You know, the story continues. Jesus is stirred up again. He is angry again because the crowd has been questioning whether he loves Jesus. Couldn't this man who healed a man born blind have stopped this man from dying? They question him again. And Jesus is stirred up in his spirit. So they walk to the tomb and, and, and as they go, he asks for the tomb to be opened. And, and, and Martha says, Lord, don't open the tomb because my brother's already been dead four days. Now, friends, we need to understand something of what happens to us when we die. And if you have a squeamish stomach, maybe you can just stick your fingers in your ears or something like that because it's not pretty. When a person dies, the first thing that happens is their blood pools in the lowest part of their body. Their blood pools and drains away from their muscles and their muscles go hard as rock, rigor mortis. As the body cools, aerobic bacteria begin to consume the remaining oxygen in the body. And over the coming days, the body and its organs inside begin to liquefy. And the body begins to enter what we call the bloating phase. As it swells from the gases that have been produced by the bacteria. And here lies Lazarus. His body and flesh decomposing. His sister, familiar with this process, says, Lord, do not expose my body to my my brother's body to humiliation. And so we read on. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. They moved the stone away. And Jesus, who had already asked for his father to heal Lazarus, has this intimate communication with his father in the presence of everyone and thanks the Lord for already listening to his request. And then with this mighty, mighty voice, he calls out into the tomb. And just picture with me the scene. He cries out. And this man lying dead, his flesh decaying, suddenly his flesh is restored. Suddenly the color returns to his face. Suddenly his heart begins to beat. Suddenly his hands begin to come to life. Suddenly he gasps for breath and stands and he is raised and walks out of the tomb. It's an amazing miracle. It is a phenomenal miracle and many believe. What does this sign point to? I think there's two things that it points to and therefore two applications also for us. And the first is this. His commitment to loving you. Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead points to his commitment to loving you. Turn with me back to verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, so when he heard, therefore when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. Jesus loved Lazarus, therefore he stayed and let him die. Jesus, how can this be? How can this be? How can you stay and let your friend die if you truly love him? And the answer is this. He is committed to manifesting God's glory that they might believe. He is committed to truly loving them by meeting their greatest need. And that is for faith, for salvation and for life and life eternal. So much so that even though it grieved him to see his friend Lazarus, who he loved, even though it grieved him to see his sisters, who he loved, die, he was willing to stay that they might believe. Such is the love of the Savior. Verse 14 and 15. Let's read again. Jesus says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you might believe. For your sake, I am glad that you might believe. Such is the the love 
of the Savior that for our sake he was willing for his friend Lazarus to die. He allows this terrible suffering and he enters into it as an expression of his love. I want to ask again, are you, are you in the midst of suffering? And I just want to plead with you. If, if, if you're sitting here and you are in the midst of terrible suffering, please, please, please do not write off the Savior's love for you. Just please do not write off his love for you. He loves you. And he is desperately committed to you. You know, the disciples did not know the purpose in Lazarus's suffering until his resurrection. And I think for many of us, maybe we will never know the purpose of the Lord in our suffering until that final day. But please, in the midst, do not give up on the Savior's love for you. He is committed to you. John Piper helpfully puts it this way. He says, He does not love us. He does not mainly love us in this life by sparing us suffering and death. He mainly loves us by showing us and giving us himself and his glory. God loves us mainly by giving us himself and all that he is for us in Jesus. Jesus mainly loves us by giving us himself and all that God is for us in him. Please don't, please don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life. If that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, by how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. God loves you most by revealing himself to you and meeting your greatest need, which is for him. his commitment to loving you, we learn from the resurrection of Lazarus. Well, secondly and lastly, we learn of his command over death. With a loud cry, he cries out and and Lazarus is raised to life. And with a loud cry, he will cry out once more and lay down his life for you. You know, Mark read out earlier, and I want to read again, John ten seventeen. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ is the God-man who spun the stars in the sky, and absolute command over life and death is his. Therefore, if Lazarus, then you. 
if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, he can raise you also from the dead if you put your trust in him. That is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, he demonstrates once and for as he raises himself from the grave off that cross that he has the power over life and death. And this hope for us changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Because regardless of your situation, you can have hope. You know, if, if, if you're in the midst of terrible suffering, if you're despairing at work, if you're despairing in your marriage, if you're just lost and asking the Lord, please, Lord, sustain me another day. I don't know how much longer I can take this. We have an incredible hope because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ of God in Christ. Nothing can separate us. No height, nor depth, no difficult work situation, no suffering of friends, no weakness of my flesh. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, not even death itself, because He has overcome it through His death and resurrection. So take my money, take my health, put me through all sorts of trials, and I can have hope because I know that He is good and His love remains even beyond the grave. That, my friends is the hope that we have through his power over death. Regardless of your situation, you can have hope. As I was thinking about this, I, I just was just reminded again about a very different funeral I went to last year. And last year it was of a, a friend of mine who was one of my youth group kids growing up. His name was Peter Vaches. He was 21 years old. And Pete was um, on holidays with friends when he got meningitis and three days later died. And um, they flew his body back and we were gathered there. I, I, I came down from Wollongong and all the friends, his friends and family were there present for the funeral. And in many, time, in many ways, it was just a... It was a real time of grief, you know. We we loved Pete so much, and it's such a tragedy to see a young man just pass away, 21 years old, not even finished at university. But in another way, it it was tragedy, but with hope, because for Pete, he loved Christ deeply, and so for him. Death is not the end. No, it's just the start. He's with his Saviour and awaiting that final great day of resurrection. Dio Moody puts it this way, right before the end of his life, and I love this. He says, soon you will read in the newspapers that I am dead. Do not believe it even for a moment, for I have never been more alive. Friends, that is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Though you die, yet you shall live. And hope changes everything. His command over death. I just wanted to end this message right here by addressing specifically those who are with us today and just like Avril and McLaughlin 
you are you you just you are gripped by a fear of death. You you are you are fearful of your end. When you consider your end, it is one of great fear and troubling. Maybe you are concerned about how your family might continue on without you, how your wife or your husband might support your children. Maybe it's just the uncertainty and hopelessness of the future or maybe it's that you're afraid that you would just be completely forgotten and no one will even care. I I just want to address you. Christ is committed to winning your faith. He was so committed to winning your faith that he hung on a cross for you. He has the power over life and death and he has the power to give you life. He entered into suffering and he is offering you life. And all he asks is that you repent. You'll say sorry for your, for your sins. That you'll put your trust in him as your Lord, as your King and Saviour. And that you'll commit your life to flow in him. And if you're sitting here today and that's you and you are deeply troubled by the prospect of your death, we don't want to embarrass you. We'd just love to pray with you. You know, the reason why this church is here is because we want people to come to know this great living king who offers life. And there's nothing that would bring us more joy than to sit and pray with you and ask the Lord to receive that gift. There, was nothing, there is nothing that would bring us greater joy. So let me just ask you, if that's you, after our final song, would you just come down the front and, and we would love to just spend some time with you in prayer. Why don't we close in prayer? Christ has entered into suffering to bring you life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just want to thank you for this great truth. That though you are the King of kings and though you are the Lord of lords and though you reign eternally on your throne over all things, things in heaven and things on earth, you are so committed to reconciling us to you that you would humble yourself to die in our place. You would enter into suffering that we might live. Lord, I, I, I just pray for those who are in the midst of grief, Lord. Would you just give them by your spirit a sense of your presence with them? Might they know your loving and kind and gentle hand and ever-present help in need and understanding, Lord and shepherd, ever with them. May they know your presence with them, Lord. For those, Lord, prone to despair, Lord, would you strengthen them by your spirit to see the living hope that we have in Christ. And may we live such lives that magnify you regardless of our situation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.